0: So, the pastor's off, and the saints are off, and most of the people in the SEC that were supposed to win are apparently off. One uh, writer called it the peasant revolt in the SEC yesterday. I can live with that. Um, Have any of you ever had a bad day? Yeah. Anybody ever had a bad week? month year <laughs> season <laughs> i give away coffee mugs for our annual youth ministry conference that we do at the seminary called Youth Ministry Institute and every year we have mugs printed with the uh, shameless logo that we use for promotion and then the uh, the year of the conference and in 2006 when we opened up our cartons of mugs on the day the conference started, we noticed that the imprint was 2005, which was kind of appropriate if you were here in New Orleans because it was sort of the year that wouldn't end. <laughs> so uh, we were okay with it. We, we didn't ask them to change the mugs. We just, uh, we have two 2005 mugs because it just seemed right. I mean, there, there are just times when it, You think it can't get worse and then it gets worse. You think nothing else can happen and something else happens. You think that that you can't go on and then you have to go on. And our reactions to those kinds of seasons in our lives, they, they range from despair to anger. We wonder what we could have done differently. We wonder what someone else could have done differently. We get mad at whoever we perceive was to blame or whoever we can make to blame. And maybe we even get mad at God. Maybe we even stay mad at God. We, we decide that he's not who he's cracked up to be, and he's not who the Bible promises him to be, and so that, that anger may get deep. And we think we're the only ones going through that. I think that's the, the most common thing about these seasons in our lives is we're, we're really afraid to talk about them because we think nobody else could possibly be going through the pain that I'm going through. And yet, this kind of pain is so common that they even write children's books about it. So, I brought one of my favorites, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Now, I'm not going to ask you to grab your mats and spread them out and let us have story time because uh, they took the children away from me, but I will read enough of it to where you kind of get the idea of what's going on. It's a it's about a little boy whose name is Alexander and he doesn't think that the world is a very nice place. Why? The opening chap, the opening words say I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I get out of bed this morning, I tripped on my skateboard. By mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a horrible, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He goes on to say at breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray in car kit in his breakfast cereal box. Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I got was breakfast cereal. He says, I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Miss Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16 anyway? <laughs> I could tell it was gonna be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Well, you get the idea. It, he goes on to where he has some drama at school. There were two cupcakes in Philor Parker's lunch bag and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll with, had a little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He went to the dentist. That didn't work out. The elevator door closed on his foot. He got in trouble for punching Nick for calling him a cryberry, crybaby. He says, then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But the shoe man said, we're sold out of that one. <laughs> they may buy plain old white ones, but they can't make me wear them. When he picked up my dad at his office, he said, I couldn't play with the copying machine, but I forgot. He also said to watch out for the books on my dad and at desk and I, I did. I was careful except for my elbow. He also said, don't fool around with this phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Well, if it's that common that they even write children's books about it, is it possible that even Jesus had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Is it possible that the Scripture gives us some stories and, and maybe they're there for lots of reasons? I think there are lots of stories in the Bible that are, that, that may have a, a, a central thought from a big picture point of view. But I think they also help us with things all along the way. So if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, if you were in uh, adult Sunday school, this is the same story that you dealt with from the Gospel of John, so if you know all the right answers, just go back to sleep. The story starts in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, and it starts off, at this time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. All right, now, let me break this down for just a second. Chapter 14 doesn't really follow chapter 13 chronologically. At that time is a a Greek word that's really interesting. It's the word kairos, which has more to do with opportunity than it has to do with punctuality. The word he would have used for time, if he was trying to say sequential was chronos, and he didn't use that one. He said, okay, here's a story that you need to hear about. Here, here's an opportunity. Here's a time that God showed up, you need to know. That's kind of what there goes. Herod was a tetrarch, which means that he was one of four sort of governors of the district, different parts of, of Palestine as it was back then. But here's some backstory. His dad was a guy named Herod the Great, Herod the Great. Now, you may remember Herod the Great because Herod the Great, self-named I believe, was the king when Jesus was born. And when Jesus was born, according to some astrological events, there was a a suspicion that maybe the king was about to be replaced. And, And Herod was so jealous over his kingdom that he had a couple of his own sons and brothers murdered just so that they couldn't be king and he could. And so he went into a rage when he thought that the astrologers predicted a new king and he had all the babies in Jerusalem killed. Jesus escaped with his parents to Egypt. That—that's the dad of this guy, and he didn't fall that far from the tree. And so this guy is Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch, and he has this idea that maybe Jesus doing all these miracles is a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Okay, now you're kind of caught up. Now just to follow the flow through the rest of this chapter, I'm going to kind of give you the, the the headlines, and then I'm going to go back and hopefully find some things that are going to help us to get through our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Let me give you three words to kind of follow the the idea. We'll call it the flashback, the feeding and the floating. Everybody there? Hooked on phonics once again. So the flashback starts in verse 3. Verse 2, Herod says, this must be John the Baptist. Verse 3 says, for when Herod had John arrested. And so we go into flashback mode, and in flashback mode, we learned that John the Baptist had offended Herod, and particularly Herod's wife. Herod's wife was named Herodias, Herod and Herodias. That's too cute for words. But they uh, apparently were really offended because John the Baptist had this habit, and the verb says he had a continual habit, of reminding them that She used to be married to his brother, but at a family reunion of some kind, they kind of had eye contact, the magic happened, and they eloped together into the family reunion. Anybody seen Herod and Herodias? Hadn't seen them. And so they eloped, married, and John the Baptist says, this isn't right. Well apparently the old proverb, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, is pretty much right on here because it's Herodias who hated him from the get-go. And so the story tells us here in these first uh, several verses, the flashback, that uh, John had been saying, verse 4, it's not lawful for you to be married. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd. Herodias didn't have such fears, so Herod had a birthday party. And apparently these were fine to do's back in the day. And there was dancing and I would imagine there was alcohol involved because the signature moment in the evening was a dance, a dance by Herod's stepdaughter, Herodias' real daughter, apparently with Philip, the brother who got left behind at the reunion. Still with me? Good. So when Herod's birthday came, verse 6, the daughter of Herodias, You need more names for this little drama. Josephus, the historian, tells her her name was Salome. And Salome apparently had a a little dance that she did. And um, let's just say that it pleased him and all of his drunken buddies. And so it was so much, verse 7, that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she wanted. She went and had a little consult with her mom. Verse 8 says, having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now, a lot of times when you leave a birthday party, you go home with candy and glitter. Not this one. And so John was sad, but he gave the order to have John, verse 10, beheaded in prison, and the head was brought on a platter. That's the way Jesus' terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day started. In verse 13, now when Jesus heard about John. now The best I can tell, and there are several timestamps through this text that let us know that maybe there was uh, one long day where all this took place. But the feeding and the floating are still to come. And so beginning in verse 13, Jesus is trying to just get away. It says, when he heard about John, and, and I think that's kind of loaded. I think that he heard about John and he wanted to grieve because his cousin-in-law had been sensly butchered. But I also think he was saying, I need to be away from Herod. It's just, eh, things are a little warm over in that part of the world. So I think it's not yet time. So I think I'm gonna get away. And so he tried to get away, But the people followed him, and here we go with the feeding of the 5,000. Same day. Down there in verse uh, 15, it says, when it was evening, which would be somewhere 3 to 6 p.m. They had a couple of evenings, but we'll get to that in a second. The disciples said, hey, this place is desolate. The hour is late. Too late to send the crowds away. Let's feed them. Verse 16, Jesus said, we'll feed them. Okay, go ahead. And they said, we only have five loaves and two fish. Gospel John tells us that a little boy had his lunch confiscated. I would assume that he ate the little Debbie on the way to this thing, and so that all that was left was the five loaves and two fishes. So Jesus said, bring them here to me. And so he had the people sit down. He put them in groups. Uh, blessed the food, he broke the layer, the loaves, and he spread and passed them out, and everybody ate until they were satisfied, a miracle, and 12 baskets were left over. Verse 21 says about 5,000 men got to eat, and it is generally assumed they probably brought their families with them, pushing the total up into the 20,000 range. Yeah, a pretty big meal. So back to verse 22, the floating... Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. In uh, Mark 6, he told the disciples to come away. He he said, we all need rest. We all need refreshment. Now, I'm guessing that Jesus was exhausted. He had been keeping this pace for a while. He had heard the news of his uh, cousin, and that would take the wind out of your sails, especially the way it was done and why it was done. He was also kind of probably a little bit over the the fickleness of the crowds who were pretty much along for the the food and the healing. He's probably even a little bit over the fact that his disciples just didn't seem to get it. So Jesus needed rest. The drain on him and, and all the disciples. So verse 22, they tried to get away. He sent the disciples ahead. He went back to the mountain to pray. Verse 23, and when it was evening... Now, this is the second evening, so it was getting late. This is probably more like 6 to 9 p.m., so starting to get dark. And then he saw the disciples struggling against a storm that had blown up, typical in this part of the world. So the boat, verse 24, was already a long distance from the land. The note in your Bible might tell you that it was several thousand feet away. Probably a quarter of a mile or maybe more. And then verse 25, here's another timestamp. And in the fourth watch of the night, that would have been 3 to 6 a.m. Best I can tell, Jesus hadn't really gotten any sleep. So when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, verse, in Mark's version, I like this, it says that he intended to pass them by. Anybody besides me just sort of dream in color and you go, that must have been interesting. The disciples are struggling with all their worth. And somebody looks up from their oars and says, um, Isn't that Jesus? And Jesus is walking by, hi guys. And he was just going to keep going. And they said, Wait, 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 wait. The, the noun that's used says that they thought they saw a ghost. But then they said, Come here, let's talk to you, ghost man. They cried out in fear, but Jesus spoke to him. And and this verse 27 is perhaps the key verse in the whole text. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The literal of that is ego, I I am. The same word that uh, God used to introduce himself to Abraham back in Genesis, the I am. And so Jesus was basically saying to the guys, don't be afraid the i am is here now hang on to that that's that's kind of the key to understanding this whole thing so peter (laughs) i love this simon being simon he said "Uh, lords if it's you command me to come onto the water i think that was one of those where peter wasn't sure what he was asking for because the command part was easy and you notice that he didn't say command me to be able to walk on the water And, and he goes forgot about that part. And so Jesus said, okay, come on. Just drag yourself out of the boat and let's see how it works out. And then the the, the way the language here says that it doesn't really say he walked on the water. It says he took a step. And we all know that that first step was going to land at the bottom of the sea. And so he immediately saw the wind. Verse 30, he was frightened. He began to sink. He said, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Those in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. And when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And I I had a, a map for you just so that you could kind of see all this. Do we have the map? Yeah, I pre- and so basically all of this took place from Tiberius on over to Bethsaida. And so it was all around the north part of the Sea of Galilee, a tiny little lake that's probably not more than eight miles across. And yet when you're in a storm in the middle of it, I would imagine it felt like the Pacific. Well, Jesus had a really, really, really long day maybe even a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And while I think that the, the, the main thing in this text is to, is to amaze us with the fact that he is every, every ounce who he said he was, he was every bit God like he promised. I wonder if there's some things in it that we can compare that Jesus went through that maybe would help us to get through those seasons in our lives. Look at the first one. Bad day instruction number one, Christians aren't immune from bad days. Christians aren't immune from bad days. Now, a lot of times in this passage and in the other gospel accounts, it tells us what the people expected of Jesus. They thought he was a a military messiah who's going to end the Roman occupation, get those nasty Romans out of our place and let us do business like we're used to doing business. They were pretty impressed that he could heal. They were loving the fact that he fed them. And so their discipleship for a lot of them was this deal where we're going to follow this guy who feeds us, who heals us, and who's going to kick the Romans out. What is not to like about this? And for us who would be disciples, if we believe that to call ourselves a follower of Christ is is to engage in a Christmas carol kind of life, no crying the baby makes, where we don't have any reason to believe that Jesus didn't cry, we don't have any reason to believe that we should be immune to all the garbage that happens in this dark world. We have babies who have accidents right here in our community of faith some of you have lost jobs, have lost loved ones. Some of you are going through times that are so unspeakably dark that that you may not have told anybody about that. And the anger against God, the anger against this whole charade called religion, you're just not sure if it's worth it. Well, there's nothing in the Scripture that tells us that even Jesus should be immune, that that he should live lives uh, with unicorns and pixie dust, that there's just, there's never a problem in the world. And we are the same. The the world learns a lot watching how we deal with this stuff. So the disciples learned. They were exhausted. They were out there in the hurricane on the Sea of Galilee. They They were having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day of their own. And there's nothing that would say that we're immune to that. Bad day instruction number two. Sometimes it helps us to focus with compassion towards others. Just a little while we're going to have a a lunch and that lunch is to explain a lot of the things that are going on with foster care and care effect. And uh, I've said before how, how much I enjoy being a part of a church that is this active in our community that we pack backpacks for kids who won't have food on the weekends, and we do ESL, and we go to the Rivard Detention Center and the Orleans Parish Prison, and we, we do a lot of the things that are outwardly focused that the Bible says you're pretty much supposed to do. And so maybe I could just share a bit of my story, but the times that I have been a part of ministries on Wednesdays, I've, I've done several different of them. And when I would go to Rivard Detention Center on Wednesday nights to do Bible studies for the the children who are incarcerated there, there were a lot of times that, man, I might have had stuff during the day where it just didn't feel like I wanted to go. But then when I got there, when I saw how appreciative they were, not that we came, but that we brought brownies. But uh, it was like, okay, maybe I can refocus the horrible things that I perceive are going on in my life by looking outward, looking at others. And Jesus did that. Look at what he said. It says uh, verse 13, Jesus heard about John, he withdrew. When he went ashore, verse 14, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Another gospel says he felt for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. His compassion, exhausted as he was, moved him to share ministry with others. The people wanted provision, they wanted healing, they wanted to make him a king. But he still felt this this hole in his heart because of their spiritual condition. Bad day instruction number three. Sometimes solutions come in unexpected ways. Now, we talked about this in Sunday School, Don, about we don't know really how willing the little boy was. John alone tells us about a, a little boy who brought a lunch for the, for the miracle of the 5,000 and we're not really sure he was all in. <laughs> you know, it was, it was Andrew who said, hey, there's a boy here who has a lunch. Give me that kid. And so, we're not sure if Andrew was really aware of what was about to happen. And we're pretty sure that nobody gathered on the hillside was aware of what was about to happen when Jesus had them in groups. We don't have any any evidence that a feeding miracle took place before this, so it wasn't like they had a track record. And so in a very unexpected way, here comes a solution. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves, the two fish. Looked up towards heaven. He blessed the food and the fish and uh, passed them out. Everybody ate until they were satisfied. That may have been the real miracle that day, that everybody was satisfied. Sometimes solutions show up. was seminary student after seminary student who says, I was at the end of my bills and a check showed up. Stories of, uh, of people where somebody showed up with just the right thing, just the right meal, just the right word of encouragement. In the year 2000, Judy's mom and my dad died about 28 days apart. And after my dad died, uh, I remember having gone to Atlanta, and dad had been sick, but his, uh, his death was pretty sudden and a little unexpected. Well, we got back from the funeral and the exhaustion of being with all of that. And I remember just sitting in my house and there was a knock on the door and it was one of my PhD students and friend, and he said these words, I am Job's three friends come to sit with you in silence. Now, if you know the story of Job, his friends got it right at first. They messed it up later on, but they got it right at first. They said, we're just going to come be with you. We're not going to try to solve anything. We're just going to be with you. That's what I got from Jim. And it was unexpected. It was a solution. It was sort of like what I really needed in that particular moment. And I know that if you're paying attention, in the midst of the worst day you can imagine, there's going to be some little thing that reminds you that God knows what you need. God knows what, what it is, that, that unexpected solution that can come on the horizon even in the darkest times. Number four, sometimes our trials <laughs> serve to grow our faith. I don't like this one. Show of hands. Jesus' brother, actually his half-brother, If you don't understand that, ask your Sunday school teacher that James wrote in James chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I don't like that at all. I don't want my faith to grow if it means I've got to go through awful times. I don't want my faith to grow if it means that I need a disrespectful or disobedient or rebellious child. We have shared that story from here before that, that my son made some pretty unfortunate decisions for a season in his life. And, and there was about six years where I, I didn't enjoy my faith growing because I was going through trials. Matter of fact, I didn't even know my faith was growing. I didn't have any idea my faith was growing because I was going through a, a difficult time. And, and most of the times when we're in the middle of something that's that awful, we don't know that our faith is growing. We don't, we don't know that God is doing some spiritual surgery where he's taking out what we don't need, and he's adding what we do need, and he's allowing our trials, our, our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, he's allowing that to be that thing that helps our faith to grow. We may not like it when we fail the test. We may not like it when we get kicked off the team. We not, may not like the doctor's diagnosis. We may not like it when a spouse tells us, I'm out of here. Of course, we don't like it. It's terrible, it's horrible, it's no good and very bad. And yet, most of the time when we look back, we go, I see what you were doing there. I see how you were growing my faith. I never really understood this, the parable of the prodigal until I had to deal with a rebellious son. I never understood that, that, that the, real, the real story is how much God loves me as a prodigal how much God hangs on to me, and and our faith grows through that when we're we're going through these awful, awful times because of probably the last one, bad day instruction number five. Jesus is going to show up. He's going to be there. The disciples are on the water. The storm is awful. Jesus shows up. The crowds are hungry. They think that they want a Messiah who's going to conquer the Romans, heal them, and feed them. And yet Jesus shows up. The grief that's going on was there. But when people need it, Jesus shows up. And and, and I know that that if we were to gather together in the lobby outside of this service, that we could share stories of saying, this was a really, really dark time, and I can tell you how I saw God in it. I can tell you that Jesus showed up. I can tell you that there was a spiritual aspect to it. I can tell you that my faith grew. I can tell you the solutions were unexpected. I can tell you that I I might have been refocused because I got to help others. But I can tell you what I do know is what it says in verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The I am is here. I hope you hear that. I hope that's your takeaway. If some of you are feeling a bit of a deja vu moment, I actually dealt with this text in a message that I spoke in the old building about 10 years ago. And sitting in the audience was a young lady who was a very, very gifted songwriter. And Sarah Beth Gohagan later sent me the words to a song that she wrote while I was preaching. It was a long day, even for Jesus. First, the news came that his cousin had died, and seeking quiet, wanting to mourn, he got in his boat and left and probably cried, and I've had that feeling so many times. I've let that feeling escape through my eyes. Thank you for being Jesus, for putting on the same skin that all of us are wearing, so we would know that you know just how we feel. Approaching the land, he saw the crowd standing. They'd fallen him from, on foot from their towns. He chose compassion over exhaustion. He healed their sick, and then he fed the whole crowd with five loaves, two fish, and a prayer up to heaven. That once insufficient amount fed 5,000. Thank you for being Jesus, for putting on the same skin that all of us are wearing, so we would know that you know just how we feel. And on my weakest days, you know my shame, On my saddest night, you know just why. You feel what's real to me. I think that bad days are what they are. They're bad days. God didn't cause them. God didn't allow them. They're just bad days because we live in a world that has bad days. But God is never far away. He's never not active. He's never unaware of the things that we are going through. So if there's a takeaway, I would challenge that if you don't know this Jesus, that today you would meet him. And that if you're a disciple who's maybe caught in a pity party, maybe in a loneliness cycle where you're just trying to figure out what, how to put one foot in front of the other, that you would hear that the I am is here. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. That in the scripture you give us stories of people in real life. That they're not just made up stories about how things are supposed to be like Christmas carols and snow globes, but that you're real. And you walked, and you hurt, and you grieved, and you cried, and you felt pain, and we identify with that. I pray for those who are in very, very dark times, even today, that they would know that you are here. That the I am is here. Father, in this time, I pray that we can do business with you that will allow us to go in the week with the courage and the strength that comes when we commune with you, when we worship you, when we pray with you, when we talk with you, when we confess to you, and when we are forgiven by you. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.